Hey, Jordan, how's it going? What's up? Hey, hey, Rob, what's up? Well, not much. I'm getting really into instant noodles, the instant noodle lifestyle, the ramen lifestyle. Uh, That's what's new with me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've been. I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey right now. I'm going. I'm starting to get all the the kind of different, the different ramens because there's a big there's like a big ramen TikTok community. So I started seeing all the different variations there. And I went and picked up at the yeah. grocery store. I saw the bulldog, which is a which is a Korean ramen. They do they do like a cheese one and they do a carbonara one. Very very spicy. That's uh-huh. really enjoyable. I really like. I think I can honestly eat that every day. The different variations, you know, depending on what you add in, the different brands. You can you can eat instant noodles literally every day and have something different all the time. I'm really, I'm really going down the rabbit hole on this. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before. I'm going to Tokyo with some friends in May. Yeah. And I cannot wait to actually go to like some of these, these spots there. But I, and I know, I know it's like the, it's like the kind of the fast food or fast casual place, but like everyone says Ichiran is okay. like a must hit. Uh, nice. it's, I, I'm, I'm just so excited just to get amazing ramen and sushi while I'm there. So that's in advance of that. I've just been like thinking about Asian food constantly and specifically ramen. Yeah. I'm, I'm on a big kick right now. Uh, for insurgents listeners, if you enjoy ramen, why don't you sound off in the comments and let us know your favorite brand <laughs> or your favorite, your favorite combinations. We can have some engaging, interactive dialogue about this. Yeah. Fire off those comments. <laughs> Um, we've got a great one today, though. Yep, we've got a yes, great episode today. Yeah, it was WrestleMania uh, last week, and now we, we're we're having we was finally. It's been a long. It's been almost three years of doing this show, and we've got a wrestling themed episode coming up. Wrestling, love to talk about wrestling. <laughs> yeah, uh, Abraham Josephine Reisman, the author of the new. New York Times bestseller, ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the unmaking of America joins us for a conversation that I really loved. And I had just finished this book about an hour or two before recording. So I'm like fresh off that high. You know, you just finished the book. You love it. You learned a lot. Changes the way you see some things or people. Uh, it was great to also then sit down with her uh, and, and, and talk about that book. It was, it was great. Uh, I think you're going to love it. I know the readers or the listeners will uh, love reading it as well. So please, if you buy it, buy it from a local bookstore if you can. Uh, if not, I did the audio book. Like that's how I've been consuming books the past couple of years. And that was also just a really great experience. So please, please go pick up a copy of Ringmaster. Yeah. And as we talked about in this in this conversation, you're going to hear, but whether you count yourself as a fan of pro wrestling or not, I think it's really it really doesn't matter because you can really still uh, learn a lot uh, by learning about this and understanding some of these concepts. Um, you can learn a lot about American society and American politics and about capitalism. Um, it's very, very valuable, whether you're a fan of the sport or not. Yeah. I mean, you're like you say, Rob. I, my first WrestleMania I ever watched was this past Sunday. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is the extent of like my really like wrestling viewership. I've never watched a full event other than this WrestleMania over the past weekend. And that being my experience, I loved this book. So I think even yeah. if you're not a wrestling fan, you, you will appreciate this book. Yeah. And no, it's funny because we were talking about it because how you kind of can slowly get sucked in and you can get sucked in even when it's, not giving what you want, even when you're mad, even especially when you're mad, it gets you sucked yeah. in even more. And it's funny for me because I'd had yeah. different periods in my life where I was a big wrestling fan. I was a big fan in the in the mid '90s, moved away from it, came back in sort of the late '90s, early 2000s, moved away from it. And then I remember as an adult, um, this was like when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, but when I was an adult, it was WrestleMania 28 that I'd kind of. This is when CM Punk was becoming very popular. He cut his kind of now iconic uh, pipe bomb promo that got a lot of kind of crossover media attention that made me say like, hey, what's going on with this? Like, maybe I should maybe just as kind of like a joke almost, I'll order WrestleMania 28 just to watch it and see what's going on. And the next day I tune into Raw and John Cena, similar to what happened with Cody Rhodes this week, got laid out by Brock Lesnar the next night and then I'm hooked. And then it's <laughs> it's like five straight years of just full blown obsession 
uh, that changed my whole life, frankly. Like I was mentioning in this interview, I, I got into pro wrestling journalism. That's how I started getting published in uh, different sort of uh, uh, publications. Um, it's how I kind of got started, t- uh, you know, writing and, and, and making a name for myself. So uh, it's funny how, how it, I, I got completely sucked in. And now I can see, I can see you're in the early stages as well of getting fully, fully overcome. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to resist it. Um, I don't know why. Maybe I should just give in. You just give just yourself over give to, in it. to the addiction. Yeah. I mean, but also people are saying AEW is where it's at. That's where like the, the real like creative energy is like WWE, despite it no longer being a monopoly, it still has the bigger market share uh, yeah. and it's just still kind of lazy. Yeah, I, I have some contrarian views on that. I don't really buy it. Like, I think a lot of wrestling fans, and this is true for a lot of like big entertainment properties, comic books and other things as well, but there's this kind of factionalism and people are like, you can only like one or the other. I, en- I enjoy it all. I mean, I like, I like AEW. There's a lot of people I love there. I like New Japan Pro Wrestling. I like WWE as well, even though that's the yeah. big monopolistic corporate version. There's some, inc- like, it's got uh, some incredibly brilliant and talented performers there. Um, you know, I, I enjoy all of it. So yeah, it's uh, there's different flavors yeah. of it. There's if you, if you enjoy wrestling, there's many many different flavors and different ways of doing it. And I think that's one of the fun things about being a fan is that you can really explore that. Yeah, the promos, the New Japan promos, especially from Kenny Omega, I find hilarious. Yeah, like, yeah, really he's like he's kind of like an anime final boss kind of kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he really <laughs> leans into that. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a great conversation. I think you all are going to love it. Uh, but also earlier this week, Alex Perlman, uh, known as Perlmania 500 over on TikTok, uh, really, really funny, breaks down news and political issues, goes on these these wild rants that I know many of you have seen on TikTok. He joined us to talk about the bill in Congress that would ban the platform, but not explicitly. And additionally, it has a pretty broad uh, foreign policy and, quote, national security reach which gives pretty open-ended powers to the Secretary of Commerce and the Director of National Intelligence. We get into the threats it poses to your freedom of speech, your ability to use the internet, and potential censorship risks this bill poses known as the, this bill known as the Restrict Act poses. Really, really great conversation for subscribers. If you go to the insurgents.substack.com, just five bucks a month, you can get access to that episode and every premium episode we release. You get an additional episode every week, and you help keep the show going, which we greatly appreciate. So theinsurgents.substack.com to hear that conversation with Alex Perlman. He was really funny. I didn't know who he was. You 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 knew who he was, and you you brought him on. Yeah, I love that conversation. because I've been, I've been getting more and more into TikTok, and I think when you get into that kind of like left-leaning uh, TikTok kind of the algorithm will end up showing you some of his uh, rants. And yeah, I think one of the better people to break down this bill and to talk about the, you know, this, what's behind this idea of banning TikTok and how that's really like a sort of Trojan horse for a really draconian sort of censorship regime to be in place. So no matter what you think about TikTok or whether you think, you know, you know, whatever your opinion is of that, I think that's something that everyone needs to be like fully aware of the consequences of what these conversations are. And where they're going, he does, he did a really good job of breaking that down. We talked a lot about the whole like conspiracy community on TikTok and some of the wacky stuff and re- real legitimate things that we can do to counteract the negative aspects of TikTok or any other social network. Really good discussion. I think people will, will enjoy that. That's one for the uh, the subscribers of the show. We love our our subscribers, our beloved paid interns. Um, so again, if you yes. if you want to listen to that, interns. that's how you that's how you get that. Um, really recommend that. And so why don't we bring on Abraham Josephine Reisman? Absolutely. Now Let's for do this it. conversation. Let's do that. So Josie will be joining the program right after this. So now we're joined by Abraham Josephine Reisman, Josie, as I like to be called. Thank you so much for joining us. We're honored to have you here. But first, before we get into conversation about your book, which I just finished and it's phenomenal and everyone needs to go pick it up, 
put a link in the show notes. We have to ask you an even more important question because we ask yeah. all of our guests the same opening question, just so we know who we're dealing with, just so we know if the conversation should continue. Josie, are you a gamer? Ooh, no, I could have been. There's a path. There was like a fork in the road somewhere. Yeah. I think I actually can tell you where it was. In like sixth or seventh grade, I started playing Super Nintendo so much that I would get dehydrated. My ears would turn bright red. And it is one of the only times in my entire life that I have successfully kicked an addiction. At like It was either sixth or seventh grade, right around there, as I was entering junior high, I literally said to my mom, Mom, you need to put away this Super Nintendo because <laughs> I'm getting sick while I play it. So I really, if I had not shown that level of self-control, I could very easily have been on the wrong side of Gamergate. You know, it could have been a real yeah. rough time. It's that classic Robert Frost poem, I believe, was about exactly that. What was the game that you were that addicted scenario, to? Was it... Yeah. Was it like just the system in general or was there a specific Yoshi's Island? I love that. That's what it's called, right? The one that looks sort of like a storybook. Uh, the Mario, it was a Mario Super Nintendo title where you play as Yoshi and Mario is the little baby that's sitting on your back. That was okay. the game that really I was like, this is ruining my life because I love it too much. It's, it's just, it's a better world than the one I'm in. And you know, that's fine for people to go down that road, but I was just. I was I was a little uh, whatever, you know, after a bit, I was like, it's enough. But I still play games occasionally. I, I, I'll tell you the, the most one of the most influential texts in the history of my life is uh, the Monkey Island games. The Monkey Island one yeah, and those Monkey are fun. Island two, LeChuck's Revenge. They're fun, but I played them at a very formative age. And my writing is basically that was the thing that made me like writing. Literally, like I had to write for school, but then I remember playing Monkey Island and saying to my my parents, even myself, and then to my parents, I was like, I want to write dialogue for video games when I grow up or computer games, I might have said, because it was a computer game, but they humored me. But that really was, I just thought writing the witty dialogue of LucasArts's team <laughs> at, on Monkey Island was the highest aspiration I could have as a comp composer of prose. Yeah. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that you are a gamer. Right now, you're not really playing games, That's right. but deep down, mm, though, the, the spirit, I guess, the, the essence gamer. is there. Yeah. It's possible. There. Well, the thing is, like now I just find games too complicated. I don't know how to play them. They all sort of assume that you've been keeping up with how gameplay generally works for the past 20-odd yeah. years. And I just – it has for 25 years, I have not been a regular gamer – there have been exactly two like AAA modern games that I've played to completion and truly adored. And they were Half-Life 2, common blue chip answer. It's a good one. Um, yeah. It's a good one. And another one that's semi blue chip, like I'm not breaking new ground here, but it's is Alien Isolation. I loved Alien Isolation. I played it at a time when I was deeply depressed and part of it, I was deeply <laughs> jet lagged as well. And it was like shock therapy. Literally, I would be like feeling miserable and anhedonic, as they say. Like I couldn't feel anything. Certainly not happiness. And I would just play Alien Isolation, and it would scare. The Can I swear on this podcast? I can't remember. Please do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I it would just scare. It would scare the motherfucking shit yeah. out of me. It's a very frightening game. If you play it with the lights off alone in an apartment, it can really mess with you. And that's what I needed to have happen. You know, I'm not usually a horror gal. But playing that game, also, I just, I'm so emotionally attached to the original Alien movies. Sigourney Weaver was my first crush. Yeah. And as a trans woman, anybody can tell you, if you're a little trans egg and you have a celebrity crush, it is like a mix of, I want to be uh, a part of your romantic world, but also I just want to single white female you and, <laughs> you know, become you. And I, the, I, I will spoiler the end of Alien Isolation, you know, a decade later, but when Sigourney Weaver shows, when you get the voice of Sigourney Weaver in the black box from the Nostromo and it's original oh, new cool. recording of her talking to you, you who are her daughter, you're playing as her <laughs> daughter and it's her last note before she thinks she's going to like go off into nothingness. And it's just, she leaves this tearful second message after the one you hear in the movie where she's like, I love you, Amanda. 
and you're playing. And if you're me, a closeted trans gal who grew up loving Sigourney Weaver, you're like, oh my god! It was it was a great it was a great moment. It was a great a real gamer moment, you know, <laughs> a heated gamer moment. Yeah, well, not one of those, but I honestly think <laughs> no, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I honestly think Sigourney Weaver is like the one celebrity that I that I would meet. There's not a lot of celebrities that I would put in this category, but the one celebrity that I could meet that would have me like dissolve into this puddle of like oh, blubbering. Oh, but, I but, will but, confirm. I will yeah. confirm that's what happens because I – it's so funny we're talking about this. Like two months ago, I was in New York City with my spouse and we went to go see Eddie Izzard do the, her one-woman show of Great Expectations. That was a great show. But as we're walking in, my spouse had already sat down and I'm walking along the aisle and I'm like, hum-de-dum-de-dum. Oh, hey, there's Sigourney Weaver. And I sort of kept walking and I'm like, okay, that's like an, a real life event that just happened to me. But I just sort of kept walking casual, you know, walked over to my spouse and I said, um, don't look right away, but Sigourney Weaver is sitting in the front row of the back section. And she looked and we both very casually made our way to like, you know, not together. We walked by just to get a look. We didn't accost her because yes, Rob, exactly. If I had tried to talk to Sigourney Weaver, there are yeah. very few celebrities that I, as a, a somewhat longtime entertainment reporter, would feel completely flummoxed with. But Sigourney Weaver just feels like she comes from a different species. She often <laughs> yeah. has in yeah. films. So it's hard not yeah. to feel like at some point she's going to be either like <laughs> one of the mutants from Alien Resurrection or her Navi self from Avatar. You know, you're just like, you're something else. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like I alien, the alien franchise for me, that was like when I was a kid, that was the f franchise that I really latched onto. You know, some kids were like star Wars. Kids. Oh, bless you. Some me kids too. had different things. The like alien films for me were growing up with the things that I had full blown obsession with. You read the dark horse comics, I presume. Yes. I've read a couple of them. Yeah. I had, there's a couple of novelizations as well. I mean, it was really just the, the first two films for me. To that's all you need. But for me, I only mention it because the alien licensed comics that Dark Horse put out were literally my gateway into being a regular comics reader. Like yeah. I was such a big alien fan and so starved for alien content that I started reading comics, which like, I think I'd gotten a scattered comic here or there, but that was led with me to go like, Oh, there's like a whole other world of this franchise you know, yeah. and it, well, it was leaves very so much gratifying. out in the myth making so much that's left out that you have to fill in with your imagination. You have to fill in with your imagination. And there were some really messed up stories that I, as a like fifth grader, really shouldn't have been reading. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. who knows what they turned me into? It reminds me of this, this what happened to me, because like I was I was obsessed with aliens and I was probably like mm -hmm. eight years old. Like, I just loved this movie. And. You know, in 1992, Alien 3 was coming out. And of course, this is before the internet, yeah. before you can learn everything about a movie. I was like, oh, cool. The continuing <laughs> right, adventures right. of Ripley and Hicks and the right. whole surviving characters oh, in the previous no, film. Poor, poor and I child. went to the movie theater. I went to the movie theater with my dad and a friend. And we it was rated R. So we bought tickets to Beethoven and snuck in to, as a child, snuck into wow. Alien 3. And in the first five minutes, wow. all the characters are killed off. Are just dead. There's this yeah, horrific autopsy everybody. scene of the little girl from yep. the first film. They're opening up her rib yep. cage in this autopsy yep. scene. I'm just, I'm sobbing, just sobbing in the movie theater. Oh, I would watching be too. This. I had yeah, the, I was lucky formative enough. incident for me. My equivalent of that was because I was, <laughs> I'm a little like half generation younger. For me, it was Alien Resurrection. That came out about okay. a year after I'd gotten into being hardcore alien fandom. And um, when Alien Resurrection came out, God, it was interesting. I had no – I knew that Alien 3 was bad. Like I loved the first two. I'd watched the third and had more importantly read all the message board threads where people were like, Alien 3, what a terrible movie, right? And I was like – Okay, I'm glad we can all admit it. Like it's not that very not that good. But I really got my hopes up for Alien Resurrection. Like I saw City of Lost Children right beforehand, same director and much of the same cast. And I was like, wow, this is a great movie. You know, Alien Resurrection is gonna be great. If I'd been a Buffy fan, I would have been excited that Joss Whedon wrote the first pass of the script. And then I saw it and I was like, Oh, you can't trust franchises ever. Like no. it was an early <laughs> yeah. revelation. I sort of forgot it because then I like got my hopes up again for episode one a couple of years later. But it was the first taste <laughs> That's of how they like, get you. oh, just because 
Right. Just because I love this thing a lot doesn't mean that my love is going to make it better with future installments. Yeah. Alien 3 has aged pretty well, though. I don't think it's on the same par as the first two, but I still... No, no. It's very messed up. Yeah. I still enjoy it, though. Yeah, it's it's Fincher. I mean, Fincher's a really talented yeah. director. I mean, he's basically disavowed the movie, but it's still somebody who gets bored unless he's doing something interesting. And he did some interesting things in there. Yeah. Not fun as a nine-year-old, though. I did not enjoy that. No, no, no. I didn't good. particularly care for it either. I saw it a couple uh, years older than that, but not by many. And I was like, this is very depressing. This is not the... <laughs> yeah. And like she just commits suicide at the end and it's like glorious yep. and it's like, oh, finally she has peace. And you're like, I mean, now I'm thinking about it. You couldn't make that. <laughs> you couldn't get away with like, and blissfully she jumps into the lava. Like you'd get really dinged yeah. for that. Justifiably okay. so now. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting way off base and Jordan, I apologize. Now I'm sorry. I'm so sick of talking franchise. about this book. I'm so sick of talking about this book that I'm eager to talk about anything else, but let's no, talk about the book anyway. I'll make it interesting for myself. <laughs> it's not a disparate connection as much as you would think. I mean, there's a big crossover between like comic no. book and sci-fi and horror fandom with wrestling as well. So it's not surprising that yes, you have that kind so of cool. background. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's all of a piece. I don't want to get totally siloed in sort of the niche entertainment media niche, <laughs> but yeah. you know, there's worse places to be. I'm certainly not complaining. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's thank you. It's great. As I as I mentioned, I just finished it uh, a couple hours ago and loved it. I, I love really, that. Really I haven't. It. I think I've yet to do an interview where somebody finished it like within the refractory period. Like that's really oh. great. Um, and for context, I am not a wrestling uh, like avid wrestling watcher. My first oh, WrestleMania. You were the target demographic. That's what I was it, going for. You seem like you're getting more sucked in lately. I am. I just watched, <laughs> well, in part in advance of this interview, uh, but also because of Sammy's storyline. Because I just like Sammy Zayn as a person. Sammy Zayn, right? yeah. Very compelling and interesting and contradictory figure. Yeah. the reason That's the reason, in part, I watched my first WrestleMania this past weekend. Ever. And it was it was part Sammy, I watched part, it too. part your interview. I thought it was fun. Uh, I was kind of rooting for Roman and Cody to both lose. I, I didn't yeah, think that was on the sort table. Of the but... general feeling, which is what I love about it. I lo- yeah. that main event, people were really upset about the finish of that main event. Oh, yeah. Now, first of all, the rest of the main event was great. It was just solid yeah, was technical wrestling. It was fun, and I love the ending because let me tell you, I come at wrestling not from the oh this is like sports. I come at it from, oh, this is like musical theater. That was my entry point for wrestling was I like, I'm serious that I like musical theater and this Mm -hmm. felt like musical theater. And the thing is, I love when wrestling flips the finger to the audience. There's nothing I love more than watching a live wrestling crowd be tortured by a stupid ending <laughs> like that because there's yeah. nowhere else where you can get away with that or where people will deliberately do that like yeah. wrestling promoters just open have open always, contempt for what their audience wants yeah well not yeah not just open contempt but also like it's part of the design of how you make a storyline work is it can't always be the good guys winning and it also yep, can't yeah. always be an interesting finish winning it's not just about good guys and bad guys. It can't always be an interesting finish because then you expect an interesting finish every time. You have to not be interesting every time and sometimes deliberately piss off the audience so they're surprised when you do something truly amazing as a finishing spot. So I am actually perversely very interested when the most watched moment in wrestling of a calendar year the finale of WrestleMania's second night main event is kind of just a, if you'll forgive the expression, a fuck finish, you know, as they say in, in wrestling. Well, in in any story too, you don't want to know how it ends going into it. And I think that was a story where it seemed like everyone was like under, it was like, here's what's for months back. Here's exactly what's going to happen. And that's not interesting. You know? No. And that's the great thing about wrestling. It's like, it's, it's unlike say the MCU wrestling like you say has to and has baked into it uh uh it has to have a contempt for its fans or at least a knowledge of what its fans hate 
and a willingness to give them what they hate in order to get them more excited about the product. It's a very risky gambit. That's the magic of wrestling as a media, uh, as a media force is it manages to suddenly nudge you in those ways and you don't realize you're being nudged. You think you're figuring something out on your own. A lot of the time too, even when, when a wrestling finish happens, that does make you mad. Often your reaction is I can't wait to watch tomorrow to see how, how much worse it gets yes. and stuff. And then it's like, <laughs> exactly. there you go. Got you. Wrestling figured that out. <laughs> wrestling figured out that you can profit off of hatred from your fans before <laughs> the politicians figured out that you could profit off of that, you know? Yeah. Well, before we get too deep into uh, into this conversation, I do want to mention the book and the title. Oh, uh, that would be have, good. My publisher would be, not, would be a good idea. Very happy with me if and I actually we'll, mentioned the title of my book. Okay, it's called Ringmaster Colon. Don't spell out colon. It's it's Ringmaster Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. It's been released by Simon and Schuster's Atria imp- imprint. Also implant. <laughs> And uh, you can find out everything you need to know about it at ringmasterthebook.com, ringmasterthebook.com. And and Josie, I reached out to you after a friend of mine sent a screenshot from what I think is an AMA on Reddit. Oh, from the Reddit AMA. I knew there was a reason I did that AMA. It was so good because that's how I found out about the book. So someone asked. What was the answer? Yeah. What is the singular takeaway you hope people get from the book? And you said. I want people to see the rise of American fascism through the lens of kayfabe and be better able to resist it. After seeing that, I immediately DM'd you and bought oh. the book because I want I wanted I want to hear about this yeah, takeaway specifically. Yeah, I can talk about that all day. Yeah, I mean, to take a step back for people who have no familiarity with wrestling, or even for people who do have a familiarity, I think it's important to defamiliarize yourself with the familiar and try to reacquaint yourself with it. Um, kayfabe is a word that is supremely important. And for about a century, from the late 19th century until 1989, it was the law of the land in wrestling. It's an old carny term of unclear linguistic origin, might be pig Latin for be fake, but no one's sure. And what it would mean was, hey, don't break kayfabe, or hey, kayfabe, put up your kayfabe. And what that would mean would be, present your fiction from the wrestling ring to the rest of the world, because we as wrestlers have to convince the world that this is a real sport. That was the myth of wrestling for a hundred years was this is a real sport. These matches are not predetermined. And most importantly, overall, everything you're seeing in that ring is real. That person is really Swedish. These two guys really hate each other, so on and so forth. And that big flat lie of kayfabe was very foundational and um, liberating in a way. It was, it was just one big claim, which was everything you're seeing tonight is real. It was like a magic show and you went along with it. Either you were a fan and you believed it. You really did believe it was a real sport, which a lot of people did, or you knew it was entertainment. But you ran along, you suspended your disbelief and you expressed your respect toward the wrestlers and everybody else by never acknowledging that you knew what was going on behind the scenes. That was kayfabe. That was the kayfabe system. Now, this is not unlike the way democracy, at least in a very broad, generalized sense, kind of used to be in America. We used to have one big flat lie that was the foundation, which was this is a representative democracy. You know, the will of the people is expressed through uh, the political system and things that the majority wants get done and the minorities are protected, so on and so forth. That was that was sort of the general lie of America. And the great thing about kayfabe is it's always a mix of lie and truth. Like that genuinely was partially an aspiration of what America was supposed to be, much as in wrestling yeah, the guys really do get hurt. They don't get hurt as much as they're pretending they're getting hurt, but it is real in that sense. It takes great athletic skill. But what you end up having is this real break for wrestling in 1989. And it's similar to the break that you get with Trump in 2015. Possibly even Trump in 2011. That might even be a better comparison point. But what happens is Vince kills kayfabe. 
it becomes advantageous to Vince and his wife, Linda, to start telling lawyers and legislators that wrestling is actually made up. The metaphor they would always use was it's like Harlem Globetrotters or the circus. You know, it's an exhibition, they would say. But, you know, it was them making it very clear to the people in power that this was fake in it's order sports to entertainment. get – Yeah, it's sports entertainment. That's what he started calling it. And you can get deregulated that way because you don't have the same kinds of regulations on something like the Harlem Globetrotters that you would on, say, a professional basketball team in the NBA. So that deregulation effort led to eventually a big – you know, I hate to call it an expose, but I guess it was in the New York Times in February of 1989, reporting on a vote about the deregulation in New Jersey. This writer, Peter Kerr, writes this article where he goes, hey, now, the headline was, now it can be told, colon, these wrestlers are just having fun. And it was, it was, no offense to Peter Kerr, it completely missed the point. It was just an expose about how, hey, great, wrestling's fake. Like, now I can, this is the paper of record finally revealing that to the world. When the reason they were trying to deregulate was because they wanted to not have to face health and safety regulations anymore. And that kind of labor abuse was endemic and still is. You know, wrestlers are still independent contractors who have no health insurance or union. And the article was just about, hey, we're revealing the magic trick as opposed to, you know, the lovely assistant actually did get sawed in half that time. You know, that was, that was what it was. And what replaces it after a few years of wrestling really languishing is something that I perhaps uh, vainly decided to name in my book, which is neo kayfabe. And neo kayfabe is something that Vince doesn't exactly create, but he certainly accumulates it and then codifies it, makes it the central product of wrestling. Neo kayfabe, if, if kayfabe was a solid flat foundation, neo kayfabe is a bunch of greased up beach balls that you're trying to run across. You keep falling and slipping. You're not exactly hurting, but you can't quite get oriented. And the way neo kayfabe works is you take truths that are so obscenely true that you can't believe someone's going to be saying them. You take lies that are so outrageously false that you can't believe someone is saying them. And then you take a bunch of statements that are mixes of both of those things. And you go and you deliver all of those things with exactly the same level of assertion and confidence. You just go out there and say, this thing's, you know, just here's a lie. Here's a truth. Here's a bunch of stuff in between. Have fun. When Neo Kayfabe takes over in wrestling, it takes the form of these things called worked shoots which is basically when you give the audience the illusion that somebody has gone off script. It's not just you have them threatening their enemy. It's you have them threatening your enemy, and then they mention something about their enemy's wife's alcohol problem or something. Something that just seems like, oh, no one can mention that. And maybe well, it's and just for, for context, for people that are not familiar with the wrestling yeah. lingo too, like a work is a wrestling match where the, work, the, the two uh, performers are working together. That's the wrestling match that we understand. Whereas a shoot, if someone is shooting on another wrestler, it means they're legitimately trying to wrestle them and le legitimately trying to, um, you know, hurt them or wrestle right. them. Right, and that's the work shoot is kind of a combination of these two things. Correct. The work shoot is an attempt to create something fake that looks like a secret, real truth. And the human mind, or at least human society, has not yet figured out how to withstand the attack of a neo kayfabe principle. Like you. We just think once we've seen one layer beyond the surface that we've seen everything. So all you have to do is generate something for that layer beneath the surface that is fake. People will find it and then go, oh, I learned the real story. You know, so the way this starts to materialize is you get moments where somebody says something in wrestling that you're not supposed to say about like how wrestling works, like using an industry lingo term to describe somebody or whatever. And people started to pay more attention because the human mind is very susceptible when it's confused. And when you can, when you launch a neo kayfabe attack, people can look at you and go, I don't know what's going on, but my brain wants me to sort it into a bucket of either true or false. So I'm going to keep watching to get more data. 
And then next week you want to tune in again because you can't believe some of the stuff you saw, or at least you want to believe, or at least you don't know, or at least, and then you just keep watching because you can't, the program just keeps running and your, your engine overheats because you don't know what to do with it. It's so confusing to see these glimpses beneath the surface and not know whether those glimpses are in fact just more surface. I could keep going, but that's sort of no. the, and the, sorry, I should say, and politically and politically, the metaphor there, I feel like is pretty obvious. You see that in the post-Trump era where you get people, Republican politicians, especially, but not just Republican politicians getting up and just saying this neo kayfabe assault of, you know, truth, half truth, outright lie. And you, and also I, I left out one last thing. The premise of kayfabe was, Hey, everything you're seeing is true. Everything you're seeing tonight is real. Neo kayfabe actually starts with the presumption of, hey, audience, everything you're going to see tonight is fake. It's all fake. It's just a bunch of fake stuff. But something real might happen. You might want to watch because somebody might go off script. And that is a great temptation for humans for some reason. Sorry, I was just rambling there for a while. It was wonderful. I I think for me, like from my background, like when I started doing freelance writing, like one of the main things I started doing was doing uh, pro wrestling journalism. That's how I kind of got started publishing things in freelance things for like vice sports. I hung out at a wrestling school in Montreal for a few weeks and did a story on that. Um, I did a number of, you know, articles and things. That's kind of how I started getting my, my name out there. And I think mm-hmm. like that was around the time that, you know, the 2015 campaign started and Donald Trump kind of emerged. Yeah, no shit. And I think having an understanding of that background, it really helps you oh, get how someone like Trump totally. can be and other demagogues as well. Um, Cause he's a heel. He's a great heel. He's a great heel. And like, you can understand, I think with that background, how valuable it is when you can get a whole audience of people in a stadium in front of you, or millions of people watching their TVs to hate you, you'd think that's counterproductive yeah. to a politician, but actually it's extremely valuable. And Trump totally understands that. And he's a, he's a very yeah. good heel, no matter what you think about him, and plays on these exact sensibilities. And that's how he, he managed to become, become uh, as, as much of a force in politics as he has. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, tried, I wrote a whole <laughs> book to try to say that, but you were much more succinct. <laughs> so... What I also really liked about this was I already knew uh, who Vince McMahon was. Like I said, I'm not, I have never been a wrestling viewer, but because of how prolific that company has been in our media and in our pop culture for most of my life, I have somehow gleaned most of the main storylines and (laughs) figures like just throughout and even in a pre-internet era growing up uh i i knew who degeneration x was I sure knew well you couldn't escape be- it you're probably about exactly my age, right like i'm 37 i'm 35 yeah yeah there you go so, it was completely inescapable you couldn't we get around grade it school junior high and high school yeah i'm actually surprised you didn't get sucked into the I, fandom uh, earlier yeah i was always kind of interested but i've just i never really got into it and i it was for me, it was because it was fake, and I was I was an athlete growing up, so I was like, "Oh, that's not even real." But then a friend during COVID, a friend of mine who was really into it, like just changed my perspective on it and got me to think about it through a theater lens because I was a musical mm. theater kid as well growing up. So he was, like, "You oh, just have you to. Go, you're looking yeah. at it the wrong way. Look at it as a performance, but what they're doing is real." And then I, and as an example, this weekend, I can't remember his name, but the guy in the Edge match who just ripped his head open. You see that after yeah, it's like, Balor. oh shit, they're putting their bodies on the line. Like yeah. that's crazy. But you you take us through Vince McMahon's journey in his life. And obviously as part of gleaning all that information, I understood growing up, this guy's a scumbag. Part of it's because of his persona as Mr. McMahon. Uh, but also because in real life, he also is a fucking scumbag. He is now, unfortunately, back in the news because of this merger or acquisition by Ari Emanuel's company, and now they're going to be within UFC. And despite the multiple assault and hush money uh, reports and allegations against him, even in his assaults, you know, decades ago, despite all that, he's now back in control. Despite a, a brief did hiatus, did you see the CNBC the interview that he did? He and Ari did. <laughs> what Amazing. was that? Vincenzo. Well, the interview is like 
a joke, and then at the end, it cuts back to the. I don't know if they they didn't include this on the online version. I noticed it was just when I was watching live. They cut back to the anchor desk, and the guy who was doing the interview goes. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm represented by WME. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? And he goes, as are many of the anchors at CNBC. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's insane. You can't you can't do that. There's got to be one anchor somewhere at this organization that is not like it's in some ways an employee of Ari Emanuel, if you will look at it in some ways. Yeah, um, but could you give people for people who aren't familiar and I think most people know who he is, but why exactly is this guy so reprehensible? I would not I, – I can't exactly answer the question in that term because I am a reporter who wrote uh, a biography and sure, I can't sure, make sure. moral judgments like that. That said, he has faced a lot of controversy and many, many accusations of impropriety and violence. Um where to begin? Uh, before he even had full financial control of the company, he was uh, involved in covering up various domestic violence incidents that seemed to have happened, allegedly, I guess I have to say. Between, well, the whole Jimmy uh, Snooka incident. Jimmy Snooka. Yeah, he helped, yeah, the Jimmy allegedly helped cover with, up a murder, essentially. Yeah, he alleg- I, I guess I can just say that. He allegedly helped cover up a murder and almost certainly before that tried to cover up a previous incident between Jimmy Snuka and Nancy Argentino, the woman that later died. Um, There's that. That was before he was even in control of the WWF. That was during the year when he was paying it in installments to his father. Subsequent to that, uh, let's see. He allegedly raped the first female referee at WWF, Rita Chatterton, who I profiled. You can read that at New York Magazine if you want to learn more about her. She's a fascinating woman who – you know, that's that's her story. And she, it's been very consistent over many years. And uh, she recently sued Vince under a new statute of limitations law and they settled. So I don't know what the terms are, but um, that that did happen. Uh, there's a tanning salon employee in Boca Raton who claims that Vince assaulted her sexually in 2006. Um, I could just keep going. I mean, there's there's we- a lot in there. Yeah, there's a ton. Well, there's covering up the whole like uh, oh the ring boy there was, like, scandal. There was like course, yeah the ring course, boy thing. Yeah. Like there's a whole pedophilia scandal. Yeah, that was yeah. Also there was a, the there was a, as well. Yeah, there were there were there were child molesters at WWF. There were two men who, by many accounts, they're dead now. Two men who, by many accounts, were serial child molesters: Terry Garvin and Mel Phillips, and they ran the so-called Ring Boy program. That was literally what it was called. It was for young, underage boys who would get paid, you know, under a hundred bucks a night to come help set up the ring and like do odd tasks, get coffee, and then get pictures with the wrestlers and some money in cash. And one of them, Tom Cole, ended up uh, coming forward in excuse me, 1992, and speaking to the press about how Mel Phillips had and Terry Garvin had both sexually assaulted him um, when he was a ring boy. He was now a little older. Excuse me. But um, that scandal almost blew everything up, but Tom Cole acquiesced in a negotiation at the last minute. Vince is a hard bargainer, and... You know, Tom ended up as a as a street kid with no education. He acquiesced and the case kind of went away. But there's no evidence that any of it was made up. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that it wasn't. The FBI saw a video of Mel Phillips. Rub- I mean, I don't even want to describe what it is, but it saw a video of Mel yeah. Phillips sexually molesting a child. And the FBI, in their infinite wisdom, uh, decided that it could have been too many other things that were non-sexual. So... Um, you know, there's too many alternate explanations for us to bother. And, you know, I have to say the FBI does not come across well as like a thorough organization in my book. There's that. And then there's also the story about Vince senior, um, getting taped by the FBI talking about witness tampering in a DOJ investigation. They send the memo to J Edgar Hoover and nothing happens. It probably just sat on Hoover's desk and he didn't do shit with it. Jesus Christ. It's crazy. David Bixenspan, the great investigative journalist of wrestling, did this FOIA request for Vince Sr.'s FBI file. And they have this thing where it's just like, yeah, we taped him telling, just bragging to another wrestling promoter about how he told Dr. Jerry Graham 
that his life was over if he testified in a certain way. You know where your bread is buttered. Self-preservation? Fuck it. That is the... (laughs) That was what Finsinger said on tape. They sent a memo to Hoover and nothing happened. Just, that was it. The case was done at that point. Like, it was just mop up. And and you describe him as maybe one of the only people that Trump could describe as a friend. Yeah. I'm going out on a limb, I guess, by using that term because Trump does not keep people all that close. But from what I have heard from people in Trump world – and from people in the wrestling world, but especially the people that I talked to in Trump world, who unfortunately I couldn't name most of them because they don't want to be caught talking to me um, for various reasons. But there were a lot of people I spoke to who were like, yeah, Trump and Vince, they are very close. I mean, one person who did go on the record was Sam Nunberg, the campaign advisor from 2016, who said that during the campaign, there were only two people on the planet that Trump would take phone calls with and not put on speakerphone so he could showboat in front of everybody. Two people ever in that campaign that he would only talk to in private. And they were Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice, and Vince McMahon. And these two men, I think, have been equally influential in Trump becoming who he is. They've been you know, it's no forever. coincidence yeah. that it's those two. They've both worked together forever, and both of them are really responsible for significant portions of how Trump campaigns, how Trump is perceived, all of that. You know, The Apprentice had its influence, but Trump was hosting WrestleManias in 88 and 89, you know? And he was, back then he was talking about what an honor it was over and over again. It was, he really, and before that, Trump was watching McMahon family wrestling in the 1950s when he was a child. We have people on record talking about growing up in Queens, watching wrestling with little Donnie Trump and who was running wrestling in Queens at that point. Well, it was Vince and Jess McMahon, Vince's father and grandfather respectively. So Trump has been weaned on McMahon family wrestling and Trump doesn't really like most sports. He pretends to like golf, but as everybody knows, he's shit at it and doesn't really follow it, but wrestling he really cares about. I don't know how avidly he's watching right now, but he's watched a lot of wrestling and really adores it and and admires it. I don't know how real he thinks it is. That's my <laughs> if I could interview Trump and I tried. I really tried. I try I tried so many avenues to try to talk to Trump and it just never got anywhere. But I would have loved to ask him, okay, so what parts of wrestling are real and what parts are fake? I would kill to know what Donald Trump thinks about that. Yeah. You, there was a moment in in the book too where you talk about a bit that they did, where they talked, uh, you know, oh, Vince McMahon might be dead, and Trump oh, yeah. was reported as calling and asking to verify because he didn't even know if it was kayfabe or not. Yeah, that's. I will say that I don't make too much hate. I don't. Yeah. I don't make too much hay of that because it's it's one. It's a uni source uh, story, sure. and that source is uh, Paul Levesque, aka Triple H, aka Hunter Hearst Helmsley who is very loyal to McMahon and is known to stretch the truth in the past. But yes, the story goes that uh, after this one incident on a wrestling program in 2007, where Vince faked his own death, faked that his limo had been blown up. Apparently the next morning, according to Triple H, Trump called the offices and said, is Vince okay? Did something happen to him last night? So I have no idea if that is actually true. I will say, you know, the the core narrative of my book ends in 1999 because there was just too much life. There was too much life in Vince to fit into a word count that had to be reasonable because it's a wrestling book. You write a phone book sized book about wrestling. The average mainstream reader is going to be like, nah, you know what? Not ready for it. And I didn't want it to just be surface level. I had to have analysis. So I end this core narrative in 1999, but my hope is to do a sequel. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think I'll do it until Vince has passed from our midst. But once that's happened, and that could be a long time from now because yeah. his mother lived to be 101. <laughs> yeah. His mother lived to 101 years old. She died last year. And, you know, I I, I just, uh, I, I think that there's more story to tell. I did more reporting about the later periods because I initially thought I was going to be covering them. And there's more to be done already. I can't name names, but I've already gotten people from within WWE messaging me going, hey, thanks for writing this book. I want to talk. 
So there's going to be yeah. more stuff for whenever God Emperor McMahon gets published. <laughs> Do you think I should? That's the to- that's my working title. That's my working title. Do you think I should stick with that? God Emperor. It's working for me. God, God hyphen Emperor McMahon. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he'd like that. I'm ripping it. off. A, I'm ripping off of a comic. There was one. There was a storyline where Doctor Doom became God, God Emperor Doom, and I feel like God Emperor McMahon is the well, it's this the Frank story, Herbert Ringmaster, Doom thing as well, right? God Emperor of Dune, yeah. But uh, <laughs> when you get rid of the of, then it becomes the Fantastic Four thing. Yeah, and yeah. um, and I, th- but like seriously, this this book, I've gotten dinged in a few reviews. And I actually think it's probably justified, but it was a ju- it was something I had to do for overpromising that I'm going to walk you through step by step how Vince McMahon's neo kayfabe became Trumpism and how Trumpism took over the country. I did want to tell that story, and you know what? I I will get to it in. I really really want to do the sequel because that story exists and I can prove it. <laughs> I just didn't have space. You know, and this book is McMahon Begins. It's a two-part story. This is McMahon yeah. Begins. This is how he becomes who he is and really solidifies and makes his final choice to be Mr. McMahon, the character. And then the next one is what happens when the supervillain from television conquers the world, you know? Yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels and crossover like we were discussing between these kind of like wrestling terms and like politics, talking about kayfabe or these these concepts like faces and heels and the way this, the you know, the, there's really interesting kind of analogies between these two worlds that I think are really informative. But I think there's also an interesting kind of story there, uh, learning lessons about capitalism as well. And you look at McMahon's rise to power in the 80s and the way that the WWF slowly conquered all these dis- disparate territories, which had kind of all had this unspoken agreement to kind of continue working together with that system. And you see within McMahon's business practices, capitalism's tendency to trend towards monopoly, right? And you see that's a perfect, yes. a perfect analogy of that sort of Marxist concept. You see it in, in playing out yes. in McMahon's rise to power and the the explosion of the in popularity of the national popularity of the WWF. Absolutely. I mean, and of course it's, it's the Marxist theory of how monopoly is what kills capitalism. Yeah. Because one of the things that kills capitalism, because what happens is, you know, I was a huge wrestling fan from like third, from like 1999 to 2001. And there are a lot of people who would join me in having the 2001 cutoff. Because what happens in 2001? Vince buys his competition. There were two other wrestling firms that anybody paid attention to, WCW and then in a distant third, ECW. And within a few months in the early months of 2001, he buys and eats both of them. And there's suddenly no real competition. It was like the the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And (laughs) yes. And the the whole – Now it's like we don't have to give anything to workers anymore. (laughs) <laughs> the creative will t- – I mean even WWE will tell you the creative really declined and the talent pool got really weird because he bought WCW but not the contracts of the really big stars. So they bought WCW but like you weren't going to see Goldberg versus Austin. You know, it was just, oh, okay, I guess, you know, Booker T's here. Like, you know, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't the same kind of thing. Who were all and all the all the stars that did come across were just ritually humiliated rather than being treated as like serious – serious contenders they're just like it just all jobbed out to the to the main wwf guys completely it was very odd and i i ducked out and a lot of people did and i think being a monopoly is not the best thing (laughs) you know look i'm not i'm 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 not a marxist i'm an anarchist you know i'm all about bakunin like i don't i don't i am not even marx is not radical enough for me and i'm not a bomb throwing anarchist i'm just a you know, judgmental anarchist. And I really think even Marx couldn't have predicted somebody quite like Vince McMahon. There's a (laughs) level of post, post, post modernity in his approach to capitalism that I think Marx in his earnestness did not see coming. Uh, There was, I, I was thinking about this and we talked about it in the wake of DeMar Hamlin's injury in the Bengals and Bills game. When he, he he was on the field, he had a, a, a cardiac issue. He, could have died. He was resuscitated on the field. 
people drew a lot of analogies to the WWE uh, right to Owen Hart response. and the show to continuing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I didn't pay close attention to the sports story. Um, mm-hmm. but I did, people were flagging that for me as well. You know, I mean that, that we didn't mention this in the list of controversies and outrages, but I chose to end the core narrative with a one, two punch. You have the climax and then the denouement and the climax is the death of Owen Hart. And what happened was this, this wrestler, Owen Hart, who was much beloved, um, was forced to do this descender stunt. It's kind of like a zip line. He was going to zip down from the top of the rafters down to the ring. He was doing a bit that he didn't like that Vince had forced him to do. And the rigging was set up that day by a professional who was uh, sloppy and was not their usual person. And Owen fell to his death. He fell 70 feet. He hit the ropes. He fell into the ring and he was carted out and he died at some point. And not, he wasn't dead in the ring, but his injuries in the, in the ring then, then led to his death a few, a few minutes later, basically. And the show went on. And not only that, Vince had, it was before the age of mass cell phone use. And certainly before mass smartphone use. So everyone in the Kemper Arena in St. Louis, um, they were not told that this wasn't fake. And this is the essence of Neo Kayfabe, is you get to a point where you make the audience so cynical that even when they see something as real and final as death, their first assumption is, oh, this is probably fake. It's probably fake. You know? That's what we've experienced in politics as well, where you go like, you know, these unbelievable mortal threats to either the earth or democracy or minority populations. People go, ah, fake news. Or they go, ah, now, now, dear, it can't be. I mean, it's probably exaggerated, right? But these are deaths. Deaths Mm -hmm. are happening, you know? I wrote this in my little New York Times column. Like, I fear that neo-kayfabe politics have turned us all into that audience, at the camper arena, just watching and going, eh, well, it's probably just a show or eh, it's probably exaggerated or it's all fake. Yeah. Or if you have belief in this kind of kayfabe system of, of liberal democracy, you can tell yourself, well, the people that are are there are working on these problems. And if they come together, then they can maybe solve them. And if they don't, well, they're, the system has spoken and it's, and says that they, they can't deal with any yep. of these things. So yep. if you have yep. faith yep. in yep. that, yep. Yep. if you believe that, then you can, you can allow yourself to, not think about it all that much. These, these mortal threats and these crises and, you know, dangerous times that we're kind of facing. Completely agree. You know, I talked about uh, wrestling in a sort of being a example of the tendency of capitalism to trend towards monopoly. I think another interesting analogy between the way that Vince McMahon and the WWE does business um, with our kind of current like tech focused gig economy as well. And the way that all these kind of like tech companies have, we use this kind of terminology yeah, of contractors and yeah, gig gig economy workers to avoid paying people benefits, having a steady salary, giving health care. That's what Vince McMahon he's the he innovated that he's you know this, he's been calling these empl- these independent contractors that work for Vince McMahon who can't work anywhere else, and you know are still yeah. paying out of pocket their own costs of like health care yeah, and well you uh, know what car rental and hotel and all that stuff. You know it's amazing. It's it's. It's Vince McMahon and Stan Lee because comic book artists and writers have also been freelance since the fifties. You know, they stopped having staffers in the fifties. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote these two books is because I wanted to write about how, cause I'm a freelancer, <laughs> you know, it's kind of advocacy in one way because I'm trying to say, look, freelancers are often the backbone of the creative economy or just now the economy period. And we just t- don't talk about the fact that freelance labor is so easy to exploit. You can get fired for no reason. You don't get health insurance. You have to pay half of your money in taxes, and then you get nothing for that money. You know, it's it's a terrible system. And both comics and wrestling have really abused it. And now everybody is. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way to to – this book is a great way to think about – uh, our system, our politics, our economy, and especially pop culture and the sensationalism in it. Uh, Josie, 
I, I love this book. I Thank congratulate you, you uh, on, on hitting the New York Times bestseller list it's in an era where a bunch of right wing uh, freaks are just, you know, artificially like, astroturfing their I way know, to that list. Someone actually up there, someone yeah. doing it on merit is such a huge accomplishment. So congratulations. Thank you. I cannot recommend this book enough to people. Go, go buy it. Um, Josie, uh, where can people follow you? Uh, yeah, come where, follow me. I still, I'm still on Twitter. I'll be there till they turn the lights out. I'm twitter.com slash Abraham Joseph. But um, if you want to look more at the book, you can go to ringmasterthebook.com or you can go to abrahamreisman.com and just, or just Google me. I'm, I have a pretty distinctive name. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Josie. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>